It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Impact of Influence The Murdoch Family Murders. This is the unfolding story of a powerful South Carolina family, the mysterious deaths they are linked to, and our quest to bring you the truth. Hello, friend. Welcome. Always grateful that you decided to spend some time with us. A lot of options to do with your free time, and you chose us, and it means a lot. Reach out to us. Murdoch Podcast on Facebook. MurdochPodcast.com and... Matt Harris podcast at gmail.com. Seton Tucker was at the courthouse, the federal courthouse in Charleston. There, we, well, we are on week two right now of the Russell Lafitte trial. He, of course, is the banker who is buddies with Alec Murdoch, and he is the only one being federally charged at this point in anything. And he is the conservator. For a few of Alec's victims, uh, people that Alec represented at one time or another, and they all took the stand for the prosecution. Also, I think we're up to something like 19, 20 witnesses for the prosecution, uh, including an FBI agent and Becky Lafitte, a a bank expert from the FDIC, Timothy Rich. So, uh, Seton, you were there for many of these uh, examinations and cross-examinations, which do you want to start with first? What popped out at you uh, the time you were there? I know they're long, long days, and it is tough to sit through some of the minutiae that goes on, but you said the jury seemed laser-focused, and I was interested. Did people take notes? The jury, any people take notes? Some were taking notes. Some were just, uh, they had screens in front of them that they could see the exhibits as they were being pulled up. Uh, I think two jurors would share one screen. Oh, wow. And they really did seem to be paying really good attention, especially some of the drier financial crime information. I don't want to say dry because it's obviously very important, but when you're going over checks and that sort of thing, sure. it, it can become long. Sure, of course it can. And a lot of it's kind of repetitive because they're still making this similar point about these loans. Uh, Hannah and Elena Plyler were involved in an accident. I think a Ford Explorer they were in crashed. Yes, their mother was driving and their brother was uh, killed in the same accident. Alec represented them. And then Russell Lafitte became their conservator. What was the takeaways from the Plyler testimony. Well, it, it was heartbreaking to hear their story. Elena Plyler and Hannah, they were kind of tossed around from family member to family member. Their father, according to their testimony, was an alcoholic. And it, it was really a, just a sad situation. Um, they had to go to Russell when they needed extra money for something, if it was related to school or when they needed to purchase a vehicle. And Elena actually purchased a house at 17 and needed to get permission from Russell to do this. And he helped her with the house. It seemed like maybe there was some conflict. She really liked this one house and he didn't approve it because the kitchen was too small. But they were they constantly had to go through him to get money, which again is very sad that these 
people who aren't even adults are having to keep track of expenses and that sort of thing. It did seem like they were unaware. Hannah Plyler, there were a lot of loans taking out of her account, and she was not aware about these loans. And in further testimony, we kind of hear a lot about these loans. It look, it sounds like Russell was using one loan to pay off another loan. He re-ups these loans, um, takes it from a different conservatorship to pay this conservatorship. So kind of a, a shell game going on. From what you told me, I think the main point of the Plyler testimony from what you said was the girls saying that they did not know that these loans were made to Alec and to Russell and all these things. They weren't aware. They weren't aware, and there's a lot of question about whether these loans were good for them because the loans, some of them were unsecured. Other of these loans maybe were a lower interest rate than that they could have gotten elsewhere. Mm-hmm. That was a little bit controversial. That was brought up that when the forensic accountant for the FBI testified, she kind of went through each an individual loan and each check there weren't collateral, and some of the interest rates were one and a half to three and a half percent, which was po- probably lower. But on cross, they did ask if the forensic accountant had checked what the daily CD rate would be for that day, which she testified she had not. So that was a little bit of question for me. So the Plylers, though, were the one of the things is they were they were made whole. Natasha Thomas, not so much. Natasha Thomas testified she was Hakeem Pinckney's cousin who, as we've talked about before, he was a deaf man who was involved in an accident and she was in the same automobile accident and she suffered some injuries. And Russell was her conservator, which was a little bit confusing because she was 19 when this accident occurred. So she wasn't real sure why she needed a conservator. And she actually didn't seem to be aware that he was her conservator at all. So that that was confusing uh, about exactly how this happened. He was paid $15,000 as a conservator fee. Uh, she didn't remember it. He took a bunch of loans out of her account. And some of the questions that were asked to her by the prosecution is if she knew who Maggie Murdoch was, if she knew who Murdoch Charters were, who Charles Lafitte was, who Hannah Plyler was, who Randolph Murdoch III was, who Malik Williams was. These were all people who were given loans out of her conservatorship. And it was after her testimony that state rep and attorney, her attorney, Justin Bamberg, talked to the state newspaper, and he said, this is the clearest evidence yet that Lafitte and Murdoch were stealing from a person whose proceeds from a lawsuit were supposed to be placed in a conservatorship. His quote is, Lafitte had absolutely no legal authority to do this, Bamberg said. He blatantly stole that $325,000. Right, and she was asked about this $325,000 if she had ever received it, and her quote was, if I did, I would remember that. Yes. Right. Which kind of got, and she kind of, she was very dynamic and I think would probably, probably resonated with the jury. At the beginning of her testimony, they asked her if she knew who Russell Lafitte was, and she said, now or then? And everyone kind of, everyone kind of giggled a little bit. And one of Alex's victims, Arthur Badger, also testified, another crash accident victim, uh, testified he received 369 grand from a car crash case, but he was unaware of another 1.3 million in his case sent to Palmetto State Bank, which bank records say was instead dispersed elsewhere. That is an issue. And some went to, back to Hannah Plyler's account. Again, this 
whole theme of moving money from one settlement to pay off this other loan, to pay off that, to pay off that, that was just really, again, uh, hitting home that money was coming in and Russell Lafitte was moving it around to pay either give loans or to pay off loans. Now the question will be whether what he was doing was legal or illegal. And uh, that brings us to one of the experts you wanted to talk about, Seton. Yeah, I thought the expert who was the most damning against Russell Lafitte was Tim Rich with the FDIC. He gave some pretty clear evidence that Russell was replenishing funds in one account to pay another account. And also his knowledge that he had, I mean, I think Russell has been trying to say that he's this victim of Alec Murdoch and, you know, he gave these loans and he didn't really necessarily know that one loan was going to pay another loan off. But the email evidence that was presented that he testified to made it pretty clear that Russell did have knowledge. One of the other things that I read about Timothy Rich was the, the FDIC banking expert. His quote was overdrafts and unsecured loans. It's a pretty risky situation for an institution. He testified on multiple occasions Lafitte made large payments that rescued Murdoch from his habit of frequently overdrawing his account by substantial amounts. And I think there was some testimony that he was hundreds of thousands of dollars overdrawn, and at one point, even maybe a million. I- I don't know exactly how much, but they did present this graph and you could see it was a line graph and you, it had peaks and valleys of when Alec Murdoch was below. And it seemed like every time he dipped below, then he would get another loan. It was pretty, I think, good visual to kind of see how this money was being shifted around. And Alec w- wasn't rolling the dough at times. Like if you have an overdrawn account, most of us aren't getting and a loan. Right. But on the cross and what the defense is trying to hammer in is this is community banking is relationship banking and that they you know, have different set of rules than what a big bank has. And Alec was always good for the money. He'd always come up with the money. Maybe he didn't always come in in a timely fashion, but they bank with him for years. They know the family. It's a relationship banking situation. Correct me if I'm wrong, which is possible. The summary of the prosecution case seems to be Russell Lafitte was giving loans to Alec Murdoch and others that he shouldn't have been giving, and he didn't have the, the, the right to do it. And the defense is saying, well, look at these bylaws, or look at this, or look at that. He did have the right to do this, and he was just being bullied by Alec to make some of this happen. Is that kind of what you took away? It is, but there were also some questions about the conservator fees that he did take. Uh, For example, with the Plyler case, you know, he's managing some of their money, but they also had a much larger son. I think uh, Elena's was over $4 million, Hannah's was over $2 million, and that was an annuity, but it looks like he also took conservator fees off of the money, that, that bigger amount of money that he was really not managing. Okay, so that was just sitting there. He wasn't managing it, so he shouldn't be getting paid for it. That's, that's what I understood. Two other things that I want to point out is this $750,000 loan that was made to Alec to renovate the Edisto Beach House. And this loan was made several weeks after the deaths of Maggie and Paul. Did that seem odd to you when you heard it? I mean, she's dead. Two weeks later, he's like, eh, I think I'm going to redo the beach house. Well, I think that that was kind of already in the process because it came out in testimony, I believe, today about 
a appraisal of that house that we were trying to get with Maggie to to appraise that house. Okay. But it appears as if this loan that was made to Alec did not go for Edisto Beach House renovations. Half of it went to go to his overdraft in his checking account, and the other half went to Chris Wilson to pay missing attorney's fees. And one other point that was confusing to us was Johnny Parker's names come up, uh, and Johnny Parker is... Johnny Parker is Johnny Parker of Parker's Law Group, as we have mentioned earlier. PMPED renamed themselves Parker Law Group after all of this mess. He made a loan to Russell Lafitte to make a trust whole. I just can't wrap my head around why he would do that. He's not involved. He's not the attorney. Alex's the attorney. He's not the conservator. Russell's a conservator. And out of nowhere, he makes a loan to make a trust whole. The implication is, all alleged, the implication to me is he knew something was shady. Because why else would he say, I'll take care of that. Don't you guys worry about it. Well, and during a cross, uh, Bart Daniel tries to bring up that Russell is making payments back to Johnny Parker to pay back this loan. But that was kind of it. The judge shut it down. Okay. So again, the implication that we're starting to get there again right now is maybe Lafitte went to Parker and said, I need some money to pay off this trust because there's missing money out of this trust and I screwed up. That could be a possibility. That's weird that Johnny Parker is involved in something that doesn't have his fingerprints on it or shouldn't. Yeah. Seemed weird to me. Let's bring in our legal analyst, former district attorney and former defense attorney, John Snyder, for a few questions about this prosecution case. One of the first things the judge said on Monday when I was there is he talked to the jury and said, as he had in previous days, to stay away from the media. He kind of reminded them of that. And I wanted to first talk to John about how do we know that the jury is actually staying away from the media? They're not listening to podcasts or they're not on social media or reading newspapers or watching TV. How can we know that they are not actually doing this? Well, they take an oath as a juror to not do that, one. Two, if a judge in court looks at you and says, do the following, and you don't do the following, he can hold you in criminal contempt, which means he has the ability to imprison you (laughs) after a hearing and decide that you need to go sit in jail for a a good period of time while you think about the error of your decision. I in no way want to suggest that the jury was would do any of these things, but in my mind, I always pictured when people are serving on these type juries, they're locked in a hotel room and they have tape on the door <laughs> and they don't have access to their phones or television or newspapers, but that's not the way it works anymore. It's rarely sequestered, right, John? It's sequestered, but it's sequestered from your daily you know, news consumption. It is not sequestered from life as you know it. And, and I mean, if you talk to a thousand people that had jury duty, I I would guess that a thousand of them would tell you they didn't look at a newspaper. They didn't, they took their role as a juror very, very seriously. Again, you know, there's always an exception, but those, those are not in any way, they make for good TV movies, but that's not, what, what happens normally. Well, I will say that I was so impressed with this jury about how much they seem to be paying attention because we 
had to listen to a lot of kind of dry stuff. It's all financial crime stuff. And it's at times, it's a lot of the same stuff, especially when we were listening to the FBI auditor. She's going over check after check after check. And it's a lot. And they appear to be paying attention the entire time. I have a question for you, Seton. Did you notice jurors taking notes? Some were taking notes and and some were not. Okay, Seton, I want you to describe for me the seating situation in the courtroom. They had the right side of the courthouse kind of reserved for victims and their attorneys. And there was a little bit of seating in the back. But so it was kind of one of those weird things where we were having to sit over on the side behind the Lafitte family. And I don't really know, like a wedding is, are you picking sides? I didn't, you know, of course we want to remain neutral, but it did feel a little strange. We were sitting several rows back from Russell's wife and daughter and mother. And it was impossible also not to feel a little bit sympathetic for them because they're watching their loved one go potentially going to be sent away to jail. Does the prosecution and or defense have sway with who sits where in the courtroom? You have maybe control of the first row or two that you might need for families or witnesses that aren't that are not sequestered but no i mean it's there's no uh bride or groom side when it comes to a case with with the state or defense or plaintiff or defendant and john seaton was talking to me earlier about testimony and sometimes it got real deep in the weeds of bylaws and the legalities and checks that were written i assume that's something that the prosecution and defense and attorneys half to weigh. How deep in the weeds can we get? Are we losing the jury? Do we need to have this really pointed out? If I see them glazed over, do I change? How does that work? Yeah. Oh yeah. Well that, I mean, that's where the skill of the advocate really comes in because you're right. Most everyone except accountants, their eyes sort of just glaze over at the discussion of spreadsheets. And when you're talking about a number of financial transactions, and then you're, and then, and the financial tracks transactions have multiple stops along the way. That's where an advocate says, "Okay, in your in your opening argument, you'll say, folks, these transactions are like a train. They leave they leave your account, and then they stop at different stations along the way. And so while we're talking." I want you to be thinking about a train that's moving along so that you can see where the money went. And and that's that's where a really good lawyer is earning their their keep in telling their telling their story even through the really dry stuff because the really dry stuff is required by the law to be entered into evidence. So they have to make sure that that is on the record in a perfect world if they wanted a conviction they might want to be like I don't even want to go through this stuff because it doesn't really matter to the jury, but I got to do it. You got to do it. And then again, a good lawyer will notice what's happening with the jury. They're going to, they're going to look over and if they see, you know, three of them asleep and two, like just staring out the window, you're going to drop a book on your table. You're going to do, you're going to do something to bring, bring their attention back to the courtroom. Did you notice any of that seat and like somebody clapping their hands or snapping their fingers or no, there was no clapping hands or snapping fingers. <laughs> you know, me with my ADD, but, I'd be, I, there's no way I'm paying attention to this. Well, thing. you did. And it, well, you, it was sub zero degree temperatures. The next day I did uh, make sure I 
dressed very warmly because they made sure that you stayed awake because it was freezing. It was very, very cold. <laughs> One of the Plyler sisters, Elena, mentions in her testimony this car loan that was taken out for a very high interest rate and questions why they got this loan at this high interest rate when there should have been enough funds in her trust to pay for the car without having to take out a loan. How do you think this will play out? The defense can either cross-examine her on uh, or did and or Lafitte can come in and answer and be like, hey, you know, Russell, what's the deal with this car loan? Why, If the money was sitting in the bank, why'd you go out and borrow money to finance a car? And Russell Lafitte will be on the stand, we've heard. So let me get this, make sure I have it right. The Plyler sisters were eventually made whole, correct? Well, they do have their money that was supposed to be in their account. There are some questions of whether there are some late fees that they did not receive for payments that didn't come in on time and also some interest that maybe they did or did not receive. But there's some bigger questions here about whether these loans were legal because Mm -hmm. he was giving loans to Alec Murdoch, whose accounts appeared to be in the rears quite frequently, and also no collateral. So there's some big questions about whether the loans were were legal. The question that we'll go to with you, John, is as a conservator, does he have a responsibility to tell the people who have the trust that he's making loans and what the percentages are and every little move he makes? The, the whole idea is money gets set into an account on behalf of somebody that isn't able to manage it themselves. And so you wouldn't necessarily go tell an eight-year-old, I'm borrowing $10,000 for your benefit because that would be lost on them. And so there may not have been an obligation to tell the, the beneficiaries of the transaction. Now, common sense would say, okay, when when it came time for the recipient, the beneficiary to receive funds, were all of those funds there plus the interest that they were supposed to earn by the legal rate? And if the answer is yes, that's going to be a little bit harder for the prosecution, unless there are clear statutory requirements that that Russell didn't follow, and, and then in which case all this evidence of all these different transactions is just kind of rolling up counts that will be found against him by the jury. So we've talked about questions about how Russell handled things as a conservator for the Plyler girls and others. But another question that came into play was, did he act appropriately as an officer of the bank? So one of the things that the Fed is focused on is in his role as chairman of the bank, which is a FDIC establishment. So the federal government has jurisdiction over how banks operate, land, not land, disperse finances. And so even if his roles and duties seem tawdry, they may not have been illegal as it relates to the South Carolina responsibilities of the conservator, but they may be illegal based on what the rules are regarding the president of a bank. Because okay. from all the things we've talked about, there's potential self-dealing. And so even though in his mind he made everybody whole, that doesn't matter if he violated his rights and obligations and duties as an officer 
of an FDIC regulated business. We also have all of these family members who have been called to testify against Russell Lafitte. And Bart Daniel, who is Russell's attorney, kind of come in and he, he keeps trying to bring up something about, you know, have the shares been evaluated? Have, have, have we ever been trying to, have there been discussions about selling the bank? And it kind of keeps getting shut down. Judge Gerkel keeps saying, you know, I don't know where you're going with this. But eventually it kind of comes out that it sounds like maybe there's a rift in the family that some of the family members are wanting to sell the bank, some are not, and maybe never says this, but I think what the what the defense is trying to get across is that potentially that is a reason why these family members are testifying against Russell. But the judge was trying to shut it down. So if if bad guys on you know, on trial and you call the mom of the bad guy, and she talks about how amazingly sweet he is, the prosecution's going to come in and say, well, what, what's your motivation for saying that? And likewise, all these Lafitte family members are talking about how close they are and how much they love each other, but if it turns out that they've actually been embroiled in this massive dispute over selling the bank, and they're on the other side of that dispute. I think that's relevant. I, I, I do think that's relevant bias to to ask about from defense counsel. And Bart Daniel did get admonished from the judge several times. I had never seen this before. It's my first time I've been in a federal court hearing. What does that mean and how bad is that? Well, it just means that if you keep up, you're going to be held in contempt. If you're held in contempt, you're going to not be going home. You're going to be going home with the the federal marshal, and so that's you know, you're going to you're going to be in custody of federal law enforcement. I think he's pushing an envelope, and the judge is saying, "All right, that's enough." And if you do it again, you'll pay the price, and a federal judge will make sure they pay their price. The most damning witness against Russell Lafitte in my opinion, was Tim Rich, the FDIC officer. What was your takeaway from that testimony? The testimony of the FDIC officer is key because that that person is charged with the duties of making sure all these lending institutions are following the rules and procedures. And so he's coming in to say, one, what the rules and procedures are, and two, He's able to say, based on these transactions and based on this evidence, Russell was not acting in conformity with these rules. And that's what that that testimony will be central to the closing argument of the U.S. Attorney's Office. All right, John, as always, thank you. We'll uh, chat again soon, I am sure. All right, Seton, another point you wanted to talk about that came up during the prosecution's part of this trial, because the prosecution is done now, is the community bank issue. It, it did come up a lot about how community banking differs from big banking and that it's a relationship banking and they don't necessarily have the same lending procedures that a large institution would have. You know, we did have a community banker on a previous episode. I'd really like to bring him back and see what he has to say. I mean, it, it does seem like there were some red flags with Alec being so you know, in the in the rears in his checking account yes. very often and not having appropriate collateral. But it was also brought up that there was longstanding relationship with the family and that he usually made good on his money. Right. And one of the things they 
mentioned was that he was late a lot to pay. They'd have to be like, hey, Alec, uh, we need some money. And they'd be like, oh, here it comes. The feds, they'll have to decide whether what he did was legal or not legal. And the jury will have to decide. Yeah. And I, I still am wrapping my head around how Russell got involved in all of this. And just kept giving Alec money, giving Alec money, giving it. Here's another thing. This idea that he would loan Alec money and then... By the testimony, it's gone in a few days or a week or a month. Where's all of Alex's money going? That still is an issue to, to me. Is it do, not to you? Yeah, that's the big question. Where Where is the money? What was he spending it on? Well, we did mention that the prosecution has rested their case, and now the defense has started calling witnesses. And interestingly enough, John Marvin was called as a witness. John Marvin is Alex's brother, who is not an attorney. Apparently, he was on the stand for a very short amount of time because the judge is not allowing character witnesses in this case. People were thinking it was going to be this mind-blowing thing, and it didn't really materialize. Nope. Uh, break, and then we talk about the HBO documentary, and one of the main players on that doc speaks with us next. Take a little break and uh, get you ready for some traveling you've got coming up, some international trip where you want to be able to at least get around, right? So you want to learn the language of the country that you're going to. You want to experience it with a little bit of knowledge going in. And you can get a lot of bit of knowledge when you use Rosetta Stone. It's the most trusted language learning program. It's available on desktop. It can also be used as an app on your phone or tablet. And Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion. So instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals. You read stories, you participate in dialogues, so you are ready to go. It's the most trusted, time-tested app out there. They've been the expert in language learning for 30 years. Buy Rosetta Stone now, and you never have to pay a renewal fee. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Impact of Influence listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 40% off. That's 40% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 40% off at rosettastone.com backslash today. He was uh, in the HBO documentary. He has been on the show before. He's been covering the Murdoch case for many, many years now is Andrew Davis from WSAV-TV. Mr. HBO Superstar, how are you today? <laughs> I'm doing fine. No superstar, just part of the process. That's, that's right. All, that's so. right. People probably don't realize how long some of these interviews go, and then it's broken down into these little segments that show up on some of these shows. Uh, on this HBO one, how many hours do you think you were interviewed? Uh, probably about 10, actually. We did it in two different segments where we did about six to eight the first time. And there was some setup and things, too. It's amazing when you go through these, how much preparation they do just to one sitting at a table. But um, they do a lot of work to make sure it looks what you finally saw on HBO. So it was about six to eight hours the first time. They asked to come back and do a little bit more just to sort of fill in the gaps. And also, since uh, there was about two months in between, so they, you know, obviously the way this case is gone, there's always something new and different every week, it seems like. So they wanted to make sure they got the extra things in there. So, and uh, so, yeah, about uh, somewhere between eight to 10 to 12 hours. Yesterday, I had the pleasure of meeting one of the producers on the special and she was super nice. And I just told her how impressed I was with the job 
that everyone did on the special. Well, I love that they really gave it depth and breadth to to really breathe out there, to give it three episodes to make sure you got the full story on all of those things. On when you started with Stephen and then you got, got into the Ellery case, you got into everything that was going on. You could hear a lot more instead of trying to put it in an hour because there's no way you can get to everything in an hour. But by giving it nearly three hours and letting the people tell the story, that was the key to me. I mean, to get the interviews that they did and the emotion that came out of it, I was overwhelmed with how good Anthony Cook was, especially, and his emotion and the feeling that you got from him as he's talking about Paul and the fact that he says he still told Paul he loved him is is something you don't get from all these things. They would have just focused on the blood and the guts of it, but instead they tried to get you a little bit more detail into the past of the Murdochs as well as what went on in each one of these to give each one some separate breathing room and some, some more time to allow them to speak on the people as well as the crimes. Just wow. Anthony Cook's interview was heartbreaking. And when he said he forgave Paul, I just couldn't believe it. Yeah. You got Anthony really to give everything that he did in that interview too, without saying too much, because you know, he's still got a civil case out there, but he gave you everything that he had and he gave it with his whole heart because you could feel every piece of emotion come out of him with it. I was I was blown away by a young man with that kind of depth to him and that kind of just strength that he showed. The timeline that was presented by Alex's attorney, Jim Griffin, we found interesting. Did you see that as an interesting moment in the doc? I think Jim did a great job in showing you a little piece of what their case would have been for Paul and will be for Alec. He won't give it all to you, but he's setting up that what they've done from the beginning is they've put doubt in people's minds. So if anybody's watching this, they're just trying to bet that little bit of doubt because they're looking for one juror who may not think that Alec is is, is guilty in this murder trial because that's all they need. And I think that's Jim's job in this to try to get one person to think that Alec was not responsible for this. And I have to tell you, he gave me enough pause, even knowing all the details and going through this case for a long time, he gave me enough pause to go, maybe I can see it. With new information that has come out, Jim Griffin's timeline is a little bit messed up with this video at 844, which shows Maggie, Paul, and Alec together. What else did you find interesting? Well, and also this aid that seemingly has come out of nowhere that we've not heard of, that there was an aid there with his mother. Is that person going to be key to this trial? Because we've never heard anything about that previously until that came out here. So where does that play in? And the timetable seems to be off, but this, he happened to be asleep and then got up and finds everybody dead. You know, it's confusing, certainly, um, but it's obviously one of the ideas that they're going with and they're sticking with this this statement of what they're doing. But now that we have a very specific timetable of at 844 to 10.02, you know exactly when these murders happened. So, you know, can they, without anybody to say, oh, he was sleeping, it's the perfect situation because nobody can say, I saw him taking a nap. The only person that may have something is if he did go see his mother and was over there with this aid. If it's true what Griffin says, that Alec called the aid to be let in, there should be a phone record of that. I also want to talk about Anthony Cook's parents and Connor Cook's parents. They were pretty critical of Alec and Maggie. Yeah, and the statement about Maggie coming into the car and trying to 
sort of apologize, but not really apologize, but just make make a statement on here's what really happened. And this is what you should be saying. I mean, I think you have to look at it. He's still, you know, a 20, 2021, now I guess 22 year old kid who still has a friend that's dead and his girlfriend is dead now. And he's got a different feeling about it than the parents who look at it and go, my son in Connor's case could be in jail right now if Alec potentially, according to what we're hearing, got his way. So they have a lot more anger from it and a lot, they see it from a completely different angle, much more than Anthony, who's taking it from that emotional angle of the fact that his friends are gone. Obviously, Connor didn't speak, but Connor's got a lot of anger, I'm sure, in there because of the fact of he was one they were starting to point fingers at. Well, and Connor's father was very good friends with Alec growing up. Seeing these pictures of them from baseball and the rest of it, I think that's where the anger gets for those families, too, is we all grew up together. We were all part of the same clique, the same community. And for you to be willing to throw my son to protect yours and to do all these things to people that we all knew, you know, how do I know I wasn't the next one or could I have been the next one? Let's go over the car situation where Maggie got into the car with Anthony Cook's mother. It was odd to me. Andrew, what's your take on it? What they had there was they said that Maggie came into the car with the parents, with the mom, acting like she was being a friend and wanted to talk to her. But instead, it, everything that they, they were saying was came out that she was not apologizing, but instead making excuses and trying to explain and why maybe that Connor should take the rap or somebody else should take the rap instead of Paul. So it was very surprising. I think you look at what Maggie had in there. Maggie was the one that we knew the least about. Yes. And a lot of things came out about Maggie that surprised people. I've heard from several people watching saying, I didn't know that maybe Maggie was the person that they have put her out to be in this documentary. You know, we always thought it was Alec, Alec, Alec. And now some of the things have come to life about Maggie that maybe shine in a completely different direction than we thought. And I think back to the Gloria Satterfield story about her falling or being pushed down or whatever you want to say down the steps and eventually dying in the hospital. And Maggie and here were supposed to be close, but Maggie Murdoch only went to visit her one time, I believe. I've always been questioning these. You heard that 911 call and still there's not the shaky voice or anything else when you have this woman bleeding to death right there on the ground. And we always look at Paul's version and how seemingly cold Paul was there. But listen to Maggie's part too. She's not shaken by Gloria Satterfield being there on her property or being anywhere doing this. And that always surprised me too, because we can point the finger at Paul coming off perhaps callously, but Maggie wasn't a whole lot better in that call as well. I also really appreciated that they did an entire episode pretty much on Stephen Smith, because I don't feel like his case has gotten the attention that a lot of the other things have. The video, I, I, I was shocked by the amount of blood that it showed in the pictures. And I also had not seen the pictures of his hands and the defensive potentially defensive wounds. We'd always heard that of the defensive wounds on his knuckles, which don't come from getting hit by a car. You can't block a car with your knuckles at any point and get defensive wounds. You look at the blood and I think it was a very rough visual to see Stephen on the ground, but to draw people back into that case and remind them that this was a young man, a very young man who was killed in this way it had to be used because you didn't see that in any other place in that documentary. So they made sure they used that as the one big image to drive home 
remember Stephen Smith, remember this case, don't let this one go by the wayside either. They did a great job with that, bringing his sister in, allowing his mom, who's always been a little open, but to give them a better sense of who Stephen was, as well as the crime behind it. And the fact that they are angry, but seemingly not bitter and just wanting some more answers. And if somebody was responsible, they just want somebody to pay for it, if that's true. We had Trooper Moore on an episode. He was still angry about the fact that Highway Patrol was in charge of that investigation when he was like telling them, this is not our thing. We, we, he's how many, how many uh, hit and runs he said he has done in his life? Hundreds, hundreds and hundreds. It's like, this is not a hit and run. This should be, this should be under the guise of sled or someone like that, not under Highway Patrol. And so he was mad that some of the grief that his organization was getting because he's like, that's not what we investigate. We, we aren't investigating murders. We don't do that. So he felt uh, he was getting a raw deal, but. And I think he did because he's doing his job and he's looking at this case the way it should have been. And instead they went, well, no, no, we're going to look at it this way. And we're just going to take all this evidence that you have and the expertise you have and push it under the rug. And and I don't blame him for being angry. I think out of all of these things, there are going to be people who have walked away scot-free who probably need to be investigated much further than they have been so far. You know, I've reached out to Sled a couple of times to find out where the Stephen Smith case is because they said they reopened it and no one seems to be able to say anything or say, this is where we are. Or we closed it back up or why did we reopen it? And I don't know if they're still waiting for trial on this or what, but it seems to me they, they owe somebody some answers, especially the Smith family. When I spoke to the producer yesterday, I asked her if there would be a season two and she said, yes, there was so much information that they had that. There was no way to condense it into three episodes. So I look forward to season two. And Andrew, what's your general feeling about season one? I felt that they tried to bring it as much depth to it, but also as much even handedness to it. So you didn't walk away thinking this was true crime and we're only going to point fingers in one direction. But they allowed the story to breathe and let you make your own decisions on what's going on. And especially allowing Jim Griffin to talk about blood evidence and some of those things it really gave it a different feel than just a typical hit piece on somebody. So I give them a lot of credit for doing that. Uh, Andrew Davis, always great talking to you. And uh, what's your uh, Twitter? Or I don't even know if Twitter is going to exist by the time this episode's <laughs> over. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm at, yeah, I'm at WSAV, like Savannah, Andrew Davis. I work out of uh, Bluffton Hilton Head for WSAV TV. So I appreciate all you guys can do. And I'm just going to be there the whole step of the way and see what's going on next. Get your popcorn yep. ready. All righty. You can check us out. Reach out to us. Murdoch Podcast on Facebook, MurdochPodcast.com, Matt Harris Podcast at gmail.com. And thank you again. Always grateful. Rate, share, follow, and we'll talk soon. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So when the scammer uses the hypnotic method of building rapport, then they create dysfunctional, delusional reality. That's how a scam begins, convincing the mark that it makes perfect sense to hand over their money to a con artist. 
The Scams and Cons podcast tells you how scams are run. You'll hear how people are convinced to buy fake art, buy machines that print money, or steal your house. I get a phone call from my wife, and she let me know that they had decided to move all our stuff out. I can no longer do anything about it except go through an eviction. And you'll hear it from the experts, people who run the cons. So we go to your bank, you go in and get 6,000 cash, give us each 3,000, we give you this. Uh You go home, and what you find out is cut up newspaper. It's fun to know how the trick is done, and that's what Scams and Cons is all about. Listen at scamsandcons.com or wherever fine podcasts are found.